Today on CityCast Boise, public school teachers in the Treasure Valley are going through it right now. Take the wild growth of the last few years and overlay that with the turmoil of COVID and the messy stew of politics. There's a lot on their plates. So we're doing a vibe check with Nick Darlington. He's an English teacher at Ridgeview High School, and what he says about truth and choice will stick with you. It's Tuesday, October 4th, 2022. I'm Frankie Barnhill, and this is CityCast Boise. How's this year going so far? How's this semester going? This semester started with a lot of enthusiasm. And I don't know if that's just my school, but even talking to some people from other schools, there's just a feeling that this will be the year that we're out of the pandemic, a feeling of excitement that like there's a return to normal. So it started with a lot of enthusiasm and excitement about that. I would say like now we're a month into it. Um, And we're kind of, yes, we've returned to normal, but with that comes sort of the consequences of what normal was. Sure. Which uh, is a bummer. Say say more about that. Like what was normal before and what does normal mean now? I think that part of of our norm, we care so deeply about students. And when we see them struggle, that's hard for us. And when we set up all of our tools to help them and they don't engage with those, that can be so discouraging. And I think that even though in structural ways we're past the pandemic, I think that a lot of us are feeling that our students aren't past the pandemic, Mm -hmm. um, whether that's academically or emotionally. And I think that often it's social, just like they are not engaging with us or with students in the way that we're used to. I think that that's lingering pandemic stuff. But yeah, so... The year still feels good, but I see myself and others sort of be drained by the hard work of of moving these kids past the sort of rough times that they've been through. Yeah, wow. How do you do that? I mean, it sounds like you're still figuring it out, but, you know, what are some strategies or just ways that you're thinking about it as you uh, go forward with, with your students? I think a lot of the skills that were lost in the pandemic are soft skills. Like we delivered a lot of content and students received that at their own discretion during that time. But what we're what we're struggling with now is the soft skills that make deadlines work or like organizing our time, um, engaging with a group to do a group oh. project. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, the sense of isolation that the pandemic created, I think for some kids was very natural and fun. But I also think that they missed out in some of the social skills or feeling comfortable with the social skills that so much of our work involves and so much professional work involves. And they're just, they're just quiet and they're, they prefer to be alone. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I remember being in high school. The last thing I wanted to do was uh, do a group project. And that was way before COVID times. <laughs> so. yeah, and that's the thing that's hard to always measure is like, there's always kids that are reticent to do those sort of things. There's always kids that struggle with deadlines. Like this is a normal human thing that we're sure. very used to as teachers. But it's what we're seeing is a, a sort of exaggeration of those problems 
in our students. Like we're used to a norm, but what we see here is bigger. Mm. And so reteaching those soft skills of how to engage with other students, rethinking how we teach how to approach and deal with a deadline. Um, those are all things that I, I see myself emphasizing more now than I maybe would have before. Wow. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about this, this bond that failed in late August. It was um, a $55 million bond for the Valley View district where you teach and it lost by less than 1% because of course in Idaho bonds need a super majority to pass. So even though, you know, 65, more than 65% of people said, yes, we want this bond to go through for school funding. Um, it still wasn't enough. What did it feel like when that, that particular bond didn't pass? You know, it, it's not going to affect me today. It was a bummer. What it developed in me is a, a sort of slow dread for the future. Mm. Because the reality is a bond is about planning for the future education of kids in our district. It's about building the buildings, securing the land that we project we will need for those kids in the future. So in the immediate sense, I'm fine. I'm going to teach today. It's going to be fine. But I see this, I anticipate this long-term effect where, I mean, I'm in a new school. We are in year seven and we are already reaching capacity. Wow. The growth in this valley is outrageous. And the way that my industry needs to deal with that is to be supported so that we can teach the kids and just have the classrooms. And so I just feel this dread that the community, I don't mean the community, I mean a percentage of the community that voted no for this uh, is making a decision that doesn't allow us to prepare for the need. And so there's going to be a scramble. We're going to need to put portables in, which are expensive and terrible places for young people to learn. And we're just going to have to keep making decisions that aren't what we as educators want. We don't believe that they're the best options. And we're just, I know we're going to feel a, a crunch yeah. Um, in terms of our student numbers, in terms of how many kids are in our halls. Hmm. Portables, those are the, uh, describe what those are for people who don't know what that is. Yeah. So if you imagine like being a sixth grader who needs to go to social studies class, you have to leave the building walk outside. It's going to look like a trailer from a trailer park. You're going to walk up steps and then it's going to just be a long, narrow classroom. Mm, yeah. Not not exactly a, a classroom that really is suitable for, for students and for teaching, at least uh, permanently. And also like I, I'm in a building in a district that's very aware of how gun violence affects schools and portables are a terrible situation. Mm. Um, for that, all the precautions that we take as a building to keep our kids safe should something happen, we have to build new protocols and figure out what that looks like with a portable. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's been so much talk about parents' rights in education lately. Um, what's what's your take on this? I absolutely understand parents' rights. I believe in them 100%. Here's what I wish people understood about a school is we are designing a curriculum, an experience, an education that has to serve every student, right? So the big question that we're dealing with here is like, how do we preserve some rights when doing that would infringe or harm the rights of others? I think that that's what makes the conversation so tricky. So for example, like one parent feels like their student should have a right to 
like a balanced and fair sexual education. Mm-hmm. Like to know about the body, to know about relationships, to know about pregnancy and STIs. Like one parent believes that. Well, another parent believes their child has a right to know nothing about that. And so building a curriculum where you honor both of those families, because they're both paying the taxes, they're both contributing to our society. And that's the complicated place that education's in. And that's just one example. And the hard part is, is as educators, I think that our highest calling is truth. We just want to tell the truth of what our discipline knows, right? Like we are members of a discipline, in my case, literature, for some science, for others, history. Like we are members of that community too. And we see the hard work that historians have done to make sense of history. And we want to honor those. But also we find ourselves in this complicated conversation about like what's true with the families or what the families want to believe is true. Hmm. So it's a tricky place to be in. Yeah. Uh, You mentioned, of course, yeah, literature, you're an English teacher. And of course, we're seeing the conversation around books and book banning. Um, It's not a new conversation. It's happened throughout time. Concerns about content within books it comes and goes, but it's kind of at a fever pitch again right now. And it's it's definitely here in the Boise Metro. And in, we know that in the Nampa School District, which I know your high school is in the Valley View District, but it is in the city limits of Nampa, right? So your your uh, neighbor district, you know, banned 22 titles in, in May. How concerned are you that, that something like that might happen in, in Valley View? I'm not actually concerned that'll happen right now. And I think that there's sort of two questions. The first is, do the protocols exist? And to be honest, I don't know if the protocols exist. I think what was wild about what happened in Nampa was that there's a public confusion about what the protocols to ban a book are. And so that confusion, I think, spurred a lot of the conversation and burnt a lot of energy for the public and for the school and and the board. Like, I don't want that. And I don't think that we're in that situation. But I also just, my hope is always that that choice and intellectual freedom will sort of uh, be the higher standard in these situations. So that's, that's what I would hope for if those conversations were to happen in other school districts, is just that a child's and a parent's choice to access information, access stories, um, would be a personal choice and not like a mandated by other families choice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you're not concerned about it right now within your district, which is good to hear, but does it does it kind of create like a little bit of a chilling effect for you? Like, are you rethinking anything about how you teach a particular novel or um, just curriculum or how you talk about things in your classroom with your students? Yeah, great question. I think that the ban is too late. The chill happened already. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's like, already been very chilly up in here. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that the the ban reinforced an idea that was already introduced in the House Bill 377. This is the critical race theory one, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. With the, which a lot of misinformation around critical race theory. Yeah. Yes. Um, And so I think that that ban is what initially put the chill on where teachers had to, teachers who are already responsibly teaching truth to the best of their knowledge, 
stopped and said, wait, how will people who are afraid of this, people who maybe are unfamiliar with this or people who are miscategorizing this, how will they look at this? What what books are you, you know, when you open them and you think about ways that you've taught them in the past, do you have to like take a pause and go, huh, can I still talk about it this way? Or do I need to think about this a little bit differently? Or or has that not really been a been a concern so far? For me, when I think about what I teach that would most likely be categorized as critical race theory, it's A Raisin in the Sun by Lorraine Hansberry. I love teaching that play. It is so much fun. And it's in a year where we're talking about what the American dream is and the protagonist struggle to define his dream and pursue it despite challenges and negotiate that with his family. I just find like so engaging. And I find that students respond to the drama of it in a very, mm. in a very thoughtful way. I love this play. Um, but at the heart of it is also the author's family struggle as a Black family moving into a new neighborhood. And I think if someone misread the situation, I think that they would categorize the lessons that we take from this play as being critical race theory. Like the the idea that a past, in this case redlining, has impacted a future for these families, for everyone around these families, for the readers of the play or viewers of the play. I think that that idea feels dangerous mm. in terms of when I think about um, like the, the hot topicness of it. But also when I look at the facts, we can see the red lines drawn through Chicago. Like even recently in Boise, like we can see the areas that were designated for people of color and the areas that were not. And so I think that it's, the evidence that it's part of our history as a community is very clear to me and it's very non-negotiable to me as part of this story. Um, and so I think for this award-winning and like very engaging American play that is about the American dream and how we pursue it, I think that it's all very fitting and appropriate. Oh, I love that play. <laughs> I remember it's learning so it in good. high school too. <laughs> it's so good. Oh, um, how, with all of this in mind, how's your, how's your morale right now? How's uh, maybe in compared to previous years and, you know, at this point in your career, how about for your colleagues? What are, what are you and your teacher friends talking about? Excellent. Um, hey, I'm happy. I love my job. I find such joy in my students and the work that they do and the things that they bring to the classroom. But also like I have a job that I believe to be important. And so that brings me a lot of joy. I feel frustration too. Like there's there's conversations between schools and communities that frustrate me um, and make me feel like our work isn't understood or is intentionally misunderstood. So some of those aspects of the profession really bum me out. Also just like the funding things, like you mentioned, the bond make me, you know, have doubts about uh, the relationship between the schools and the community and the value and respect that the community has. So all of that's me, but also a strange thing that happened is a lot of teachers uh, at the end of last school year said, no, thank you. I'm not coming back. Um, and so in that there's been a lot of shuffle. And so, I don't know, that's created a new dynamic and I'm excited about the new teachers. Like a couple of my coworkers are new to the profession, right? They're like starting their first classes and there's such energy and excitement to that. 
So I'm excited about those things, but I'm also, I don't know, I feel so responsible for ushering them into the profession. And I feel like I, we have handed them a group of students that just aren't performing like a normal set. And they mm. have a set of problems that are new and unique to this moment. And so I just wish that I could start them off with a normal set and be like, here's what it should be like. And here's how this is different. But instead, you know, they have students who've lived through a pandemic and have done years of education alone at home or partially alone at home. So you're 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 trying to mentor students and you're also trying to mentor your your new colleagues who are, yeah, first year. Um, that's gotta be a lot. <laughs> that's a lot to handle. <laughs> it's a full day. It's a very full day. Nick, thank you so much. This has been been great. And uh, thank you so much for what you do as a public school teacher. CityCast Boise is rooting for you. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate I appreciate hearing that. Thank you so much, Frankie. And a couple more things before we sign off. This afternoon, the Boise City Council is holding a work session on the all-importance zoning code rewrite. You can watch it online or in person at City Hall. And good news, both Ada and Canyon Counties are in the low transmission category for COVID-19. That's according to the CDC. Reminder that the new booster is free and available at pharmacies and clinics all around the valley. Thanks for listening to CityCast Boise. If you're liking the show, tell a teacher in your life about us. And follow us on Instagram, where we've got an October-themed slideshow to get you out of the house. We'll be back Thursday with more local stories. See you then.